Well, good evening. Welcome. Uh, we have a little bit of a smaller crowd tonight. Some of you guys might be aware. We've got um, an event going on in our East Auditorium. Uh, we have an illusionist here tonight. We don't say magician, I guess, because magician sounds bad. We call him an illusionist. He's a magician. Um, and um, uh, I tried out for the part, but I didn't have enough tricks, so they wouldn't let me do it. Um, I thought about just doing that in here. I thought well, that'd be probably better. You know, we should do something a little different. Um, but uh, so, so a lot of our parents are over in the East Auditorium tonight. And so hopefully that wasn't too much of, a, of an inconvenience for anyone who, uh, who, who wasn't too aware of that. But um, Can I invite our ushers to come forward? This is, I know a lot of you have come prepared to give your weekly tithes and offering. And um, appreciate your faithfulness in giving not just to Timberline, but, but through it to really impact our world. We've already prayed, so you can go ahead and pass those. Um, <clears throat> I was talking with... You know, Super Bowl comes along, you talk about, well, in my house, like we talk about commercials because that's like our, like our favorite part of the Super Bowl is just all the different commercials that go on. And uh, about a year and a half, maybe two years ago, our family actually got rid of um, cable TV. And so my kids like, don't even know what a commercial is. And so when they see one, they're like glued to it because, you know, it's like, man, it's fast. I mean, you know, because they put a lot of thought into what goes into a commercial, you know, to grab people. So they're like totally oblivious. They think commercials are like the coolest thing ever because they just don't see them. Anyways, we were just talking about some of the different commercials, you know, that have gone on. Have you guys seen this commercial? It's, it's for direct TV. And they're great. They've got like a series of them. And it's all about the idea. You know, they're trying to get you to switch from cable to direct TV. And their, their selling point is... Like cable, will, it'll frustrate you, and it'll make you mad, and you'll get depressed because you'll be waiting for the cable guy to show up, or you, know, you can't record your DVR uh, play. You know, something will go wrong, and it makes you frustrated. And when you're frustrated, it, you know, it leads to something else, which leads to something else, and it's this long kind of just absurd series, and the person finds himself in a place where they're just going like, how did I get here? Like, wh- how did I get so derailed? So uh, take a look at the screens. I want you to watch these two, these two commercials. They're kind of good. keeps you on hold, you get angry. When you get angry, you go blow off steam. When you go blow off steam, accidents happen. When accidents happen, you get an eye patch. When you get an eye patch, people think you're tough. When people think you're tough, people want to see how tough. And when people want to see how tough, you wake up in a roadside ditch. Don't wake up in a roadside ditch. Get rid of cable and upgrade to DirecTV. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. When you wait forever for the cable guy, you get bored. When you get bored, you start staring out windows. When you start staring out windows, you see things you shouldn't see. When you see things you shouldn't see, you need to vanish. When you need to vanish, you fake your own death. When you fake your own death, you dye your eyebrows. And when you dye your eyebrows, you attend your own funeral as a guy named Phil Shifley. Don't attend your own funeral as a guy named Phil Shifley. Get rid of cable and upgrade to DirecTV. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. <laughs> All right. What do you see? We just keep watching some more of those. There's like there's like a whole host and there's like a dozen of those. You know what I love about this? it was a it was a great, and I'm not promoting Directv. I don't have Directv, but um, what I love about this idea is have have you ever been at a place where you sort of like wonder like how how did I get here? Like how did this series of events get me to the place where I'm lying you know face down in a roadside ditch, right? Or I'm attending my own funerals feel shiftly. Um, how how do I get to this place? Um, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, 
Jesus, Jesus tells this, this sort of sermon. He's got this message. We oftentimes call it the Olivet Discourse. And in it, here's, here's basically the message. He goes, guys, God is in charge of history. God is doing certain things in our world. He has intentions. And you won't always understand it. It won't always be really clear to you. Oftentimes, you're going to think the timing is way off. You're going to, and you're not going to be able to guess the timing. You won't even be able to estimate when, when things are happening. But regardless of that, this is, this is what he calls his kingdom. You know, this whole thing, how God's interacting in the world. He says, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. You don't want to mess this one up. You don't want to miss out. You don't want to be unprepared. And so he continually says, so like, stay alert. Be, be, be really aware. He uses things like, you know, have your ears open. Have your eyes open. Be aware of what God is doing in the world, because you do not want to miss that. You don't want to end up in that roadside ditch. And this is this idea of kingdoms, because see, there's a lot of different kingdoms out there. There's a lot of different ways about which you can go about your life. And so as a way of kind of making this memorable, Jesus, as he, as he oftentimes does, he, he, he grabs one of these stories, one of these parables, as, as we've been looking at in this whole series, and as a way to get past, again, people's watchful dragons, these sort of natural defenses that they have to listen, he tells this imaginative story, um, this sort of uh, mind experiment. And it's all talking about what God is up to in the world. It's all talking about... This is a phrase that Jesus talks about more than any other topic in the New Testament. This is the issue that he starts talking about when he begins his ministry. He says, repent, why? Because this is here. This is the one central topic more than anything else that Jesus has words to say about. So it seems to be pretty essential to what he views his whole mission as, and what he thinks we need to be focusing, and, and in this sort of scenario, get right, not get wrong, not get a little bit off on, and we end up again ro- face down in a, in a roadside ditch. And so in this passage tonight that we're looking at, he, he talks about, like, like w- what's this about? What's the nature of this? Like, who, who can enter it? How do you enter it? What does it look like? And how does it impact our lives. And so tonight we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 25. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Matthew chapter 25. And we're looking at one of these parables about the kingdom of God. And in verse 1, let's start reading here. We read, At that time, the king, this is Jesus speaking, the kingdom of heaven, which is a synonym for the kingdom of God, he would use those terms interchangeably, will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they were all becoming drowsy, and they fell asleep. But at midnight the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up, trimmed their lamps, The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go and to those who can sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were away to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. 
The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, Jesus says, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Now, just a little bit of context. If you think about, okay, Middle Eastern, you know, traditional weddings. We, we have weddings in our culture. We do certain ways, you know, at the center of our weddings, you know, that we do. You know, the reason that we've got a center aisle oftentimes is the bride walks down. There's a certain procession of things of, of how it goes. Middle Eastern weddings were, were quite different. Wedding celebrations typically lasted for days, sometimes a week. And, and the setting here is one of those banquets in the midst of a wedding. This is the story that Jesus is telling. And it's taking place at the home of the groom. When the bride was ready, typically what would happen is the groom and his friends, you know, the best man and kind of the you know, best men in the, um, in the wedding, they, they would go to the bride's house. And it, would, it might be in the next village over. It might be somewhere else in the town. And they would get her. And they would place her on some sort of an animal, a donkey or a horse or something like that. And the grooms and the friends would form this sort of like disorganized but super excited kind of parade. And, and they would walk through the town and they would take the longest possible walk they could. Because now at the back of the parade is the groom. At the front is all his friends and buddies and they're celebrating because they want everyone to be able to come out. They hear him coming, they come out and they're just excited. They're, man, they, you know, congratulations, this is awesome. This is a major celebration within the Middle Eastern Jewish traditional cultures. And so traditionally, weddings would take place during, the, during those seven hottest months of the year. Um, not a lot of cloud cover. So this one happens to be taking place at night. The events are here. And so the crowd who's waiting in the groom's house, it's, it's a while. They know it's going to be a while. Some of them go outside, and they're waiting out there, probably because of the heat. And they're waiting for the wedding party to arrive and the groom and the bride to be at the end of that line coming. And among the guests, Jesus tells us in this picture, are, are, are ten young women. And, and all of them, we're told, have lamps. Now, there's a scholar by the name of Kenneth Bailey. Kenneth Bailey is a New Testament scholar. He's a, he's a Westerner, but, but he spent like 40 years of his life teaching New Testament in uh, Jerusalem and Lebanon and Egypt and places in the Middle East. And, and he's written some fabulous books which give a, a great understanding of culturally what's going on here, like what, what's, what's taking place to kind of help us get the things that the original readers would have just picked up right away. But again, we're, we're culture removed, we're years removed. And he talks about this idea that typically uh, the reason women would, would carry lamps, it was not to be like a flashlight for their feet. It wasn't so they could see where they're going. The, the dry, kind of clear uh, evenings, the sun and the stars provided enough light just in that sort of setting, especially during those months. So it wasn't that. The reason that they, they would do this was that uh, basically to protect their reputation, because you see a young girl walking around at night, well, where is she going and who is she going to be with? And it's to protect their safety. And so he said the way that he's seen many women, even to this day in traditional cultures, holding lamps is up by their face so that people could see them. So people could say, oh, yeah, I can testify. I know where she was. I saw where she went as people are outside and by, by their houses. This is what's going on with these young women. Um, and so the difference between these ten women we're told by Jesus, is that, well, half of them brought 
additional olive oil for their lamps. And then the other half weren't prepared. They didn't exactly know what was going on. They weren't thinking. They were being careless. Whatever the reasons, they didn't bring enough. But at some point in the night, the the parade, well, you know, first they fall asleep. It gets late. Again, you know, the party's going all throughout the town or the village trying to rouse up just all the excitement. At some point they get tired. They carefully set their lamps aside. They get dozy and they, uh, and they fall off to sleep. And um, at some point, though, the wedding party arrives and it, lost, it, it, it lasted longer than, than the ten uh, people who were waiting thought it would. And so they go to, you know, pick up their lamps and they, they hear the crowd yell, he's here, come on out. And half of them realize pretty quickly, man, they don't have enough. And so they ask to borrow some, and they're told, no, we don't, you know, we don't have, it, I give you some, I won't have enough even. I won't even be able to be out there to greet them. You know, go, in the, you know, go find some, go borrow some uh, from someone else, everyone in the village knows each other, or go buy it from someone. Well, meanwhile, while they're gone, this, this, this procession arrives, the party comes. So all the, all the friends of the groom are up front, they're celebrating. And then finally at the back of that comes the, the bride and the groom, and this whole crowd sweep into the house, and the door is shut behind them. And the final scene in Jesus' kind of imaginative story is the, these five women, they've been able to get some oil, they come back, and the door's locked. And they're knocking, and they say, sir, sir, let us in. And he says, I don't, I don't think I know you. Now, before we get into the outline, if you have your, your, your bulletin with you, there's a couple uh, fill-in-the-blanks you can, you can fill in. Before we get to that, let me make one quick um, statement about this idea of the kingdom. Because remember, that's the context. Jesus is, is teaching about the kingdom of God, this kingdom that, that he's ushering. And um, Dallas Willard puts it this way. I love this statement. This is in his book, Divine Conspiracy. Dallas Willard writes... Every last one of us has a kingdom, or a queendom, or a government. And he explains it as this. It is a realm that is uniquely our own, where our choice determines what happens. Listen to that again. Every last one of us has a kingdom, or a queendom, or a government. A realm that is uniquely your, our own, where our choice determines what happens. See, our, our kingdom is, is essentially this. It is the range of your effective will. Uh, it's, it's whatever you have say over. Whatever you have say over, that, that is your kingdom. So as we think about this, this word right here, the kingdom of God, um, think about God's kingdom in that same kind of definition. It's the range of God's effective will. The kingdom of God is that which God has say over. It's the range of his effective will. So, you know, the Lord's Prayer, remember, Jesus says, we are to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Kingdom is a picture of God's will being, being uh, expressed or lived out, embraced beyond there. Now, this is, this is why there's both a a now and a 
and a not yet aspect to God's will. God's kingdom, I should say. There's both the now aspect and a not yet aspect to the kingdom of God. It's now in that Jesus is coming, announced the kingdom is here. It established that his kingdom is here. It's, it's like planting the flag of truth in enemy-occupied territory and saying, this, this, this land is claimed by someone else. That's what Jesus' coming did. And so God's effective rule from the time of Christ's coming is that idea of it's in the hearts and the minds of individuals. That's how this kingdom is spreading. By heart saying, I'm submitting and I'm giving up my kingdom to your kingdom. Right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done as opposed to my kingdom, my will be done. Um, this is so often Jesus says, like Matthew 3, Matthew 4, Matthew 10, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's like saying it's in front of your face. It's right here. The kingdom of God is before you. Sometimes he says, if I cast out demons by the power of the Spirit, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God is established. The flag has been planted. It's here now. But there's also a reality that, that followers of Jesus realize and that the kingdom of God is not yet. It's, it's not like fully here because there are still parts of this world that are in deep rebellion against the effective will of God. It's sort of like World War II. The Allied forces have landed, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to go a certain direction, but, but the war isn't over. There's still rebellious hearts taking up guns. This is why Hebrews chapter 10, verse 13, we're told that Jesus waits for the evil to be made his footstool. There's still that kind of not yet aspect to God's effective rule being seen totally established in our world. So as we get to that, our outline, think about this as Jesus talks about his kingdom or what it's like. He's talking about both of these components. The right now aspect, meaning Christ is planting a flag. How do I respond to that? Do I go, forget it, I'm doing my own thing, it's my kingdom? As well as at the end of time even, when his kingdom is fully established, like what is that like for me? How do I respond to that? How will I enter that, that full kingdom? And how do I even enter the kingdom right now? So Jesus tells us in this parable, I would suggest, four things about the nature of his kingdom. Number one, this is in your outline there. The ones who receive the kingdom may not be who you'd expect. It might not be the ones you would expect. Many of Jesus' parables are told from him kind of out of this, like, frustration, um, kind of disappointment that, that people weren't, didn't have a readiness to receive the kingdom of God, because they've been talking about it. Jews talked about it all the time, constantly, the kingdom of God. And when he showed up, there was this, this hesitancy, there's this resistance. Um, and what's interesting is, the, you think for just a second about how people responded to the message. Okay? You've got, you know, think about even his birth. You've got the shepherds. I mean, their response is like, okay, it's just, I'm not fully getting it, but I'm receiving it. And then you've got Herod's response. No way, and, and I, I will kill to stop this kingdom coming. And he realized that's what it was, another king. You've got so many different responses of, of, of how people responded to this idea. And it cuts against religious, or through religious groups. 
you know, you've got, you've got seculars, you've got the Gentiles like the, you know, the wise men. Their response was, man, I'm intrigued, I want to find out more. And then you've got the, the Gentile Roman soldiers who carry out Herod's mission. And so this response, there's no clear-cut border as to, like, who's in, who's not, who likes it, who doesn't. Um, it goes through the poor and the wealthy. didn't really matter if you're poor or wealthy. People responded differently. Jew or Gentile, educated or simple. And so we get this picture of these ten women. They're all in the same group at the beginning. They were all part of the same group. And they're indistinguishable from each other. Why do some receive it and others do not? You ever thought about that? Like, why do some people receive the kingdom, the flag that's been planted, and some don't? Uh, week one, we were looking at this parable that we, we said, we said it really kind of sets the whole groundwork for this series of parables. It was the parable, remember, of the sower, different kinds of, like, fields. There's a road, and there's, there's a field over here, and the one field's kind of hard, and one's shallow, and one's real rich. And, and, and seed is spread all over in it. And, you know, there was the hard soil, there was kind of the shallow soil, there was the divided soil because it was sharing the soil with weeds, and then there was this, this rich soil. And Jesus' whole point is, listen, ask yourself the question, is, is it my kingdom or yours? Because if you don't pause, if you don't ask that question, you'll live in default setting, and that's your kingdom. It's interesting. One time Jesus' apprentices asked a greatness question. They said, okay, your kingdom... They're talking about that again. They said, like, what does greatness look like in your kingdom? You know, what, because you've got a lot of ideas as to what greatness looks like. Like, who's great in the kingdom? And in Matthew 13, we have it recorded. They said, like, who's, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And, and so Jesus does another one of these great learning opportunities. He said, he, he somehow called, he beckoned over to himself a, a little child, we're told. And he says this, he called over a little child to him and he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change, that's an interesting statement, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, we kind of look at that and we go, oh, that, that, that's good. Kids are cute and you know, they're nice and they're innocent. In the ancient world, children played a totally different role in society. There's a really interesting book um, written. It's called When Children Became People. Isn't that an interesting title? When, when Children Became People. And the author is O.M. Beck. And he uses social history research to give kind of the backdrop of the Greco-Roman world as to how children were perceived in this world. Children were really seen exclusively for um, pragmatic means. Like how, how, how useful can they be? Uh, as a good example, the vast majority of girls who were born in the ancient world died, uh, typically left out for exposure because th they weren't seen as, as providing some sort of a useful resource to the family. As an example, in the ancient uh, Greco-Roman world, there were about 140 men for every 100 women because women just weren't seen as that important. Poor enslaved children, how they were used, this, it, was a, it was not uncommon for, for poor children to be sold, and they were taken to a brothel, boys and girls, and the boys stayed in the brothel until they grew beards, records told us, and, and, until they, you, you realized this wasn't a girl. And women stayed there, girls did, until their beauty faded, and then they were cast out and left. So when Jesus pointed 
to a little child and he says, you have to change, you have to become like that. This was like a shocking idea. It wasn't a cute thing. It's not saying you'll become like a little puppy. You know, we have an idea. Oh, that's cute. That's adorable. He's saying take a position of someone in our world who has, who has no power claims. Their effective rule is like nil, nothing. They, they have no rule in their life. They are completely ruled by others. Whatever is done to them, they have no recourse they're completely dependent, and they're not, they're not measured by, well, this is a taller child or a smarter child. None of, those, none of those factors mattered. And so when he points to this, people knew, or what he was saying was, here's what you have to become like. You have to become like someone who knows you are deeply flawed. You have to become like someone who knows you are deeply broken. You have to become like someone who knows that that sin has shattered your soul. And you, you're a messed up, broken, dirty, rotten scoundrel. And you're, and you're racked with self-obsession. See, that's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 2, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He said, I haven't come for the righteous. I've come for sinners. Those are the ones who can enter this kingdom. He said, you have to change. It doesn't mean change like become a sinner. What he's saying is that you already are, you don't know it. <laughs> right? Because we have these blinders on. And until you realize your position, that, that it's so low, it's like what a child was viewed like. That's, uh, until you realize that, you won't enter this kingdom. You'll think it's absurd. You'll think it's ridiculous. You'll think it's beneath you. So the ones who receive the kingdom may not be the ones you expect. Number two... Speculation about the time of Jesus' return, he tells us in this parable, is pointless. Speculation about the time of Jesus' return is pointless. Um, it's re- it's, it can be kind of perplexing to, to us if we really think about it. This, like the final section, you know, Matthew chapter 24 and 25 is this bigger sermon of, the, of this message that he's giving. At the end of like the first section of this chapter, you know what Jesus says? He says this about, about the not yet part, about that final you know, coming when he sort of all evils wiped out. This is what he says, Matthew 24, 36. But about that day, about the final end, no one, or I'm sorry, about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So he makes a really interesting statement. He says zero. Angels in heaven don't know. He, he says the Son of Man, which is his favorite title for himself. I don't even know. It hasn't been revealed to me. He lived in perfect you know, dependence on, on the Father. He said, I've only done what the Father's revealed to me. No one knows the day or the hour of my second coming when the kingdom is consummated, when all things are made right, when, when, when every tear is wiped away. No one knows that day. Um, I remember a few years back... Uh, probably all of us in this room remember, as we were approaching uh, the change of the century. Remember Y2K? I remember one time standing in line at the superstore, uh, at the supermarket, and there were all these magazines and you know, tabloids and that sort of thing. And there was one, it was uh, the, the Weekly World News, okay? And it's, it's this tabloid newspaper. And what, what, the, what, what it read on the front cover of it was this. Quote, star over Bethlehem signals the end of the world. 
Now listen, listen to what some of the other headlines during those, those next few months and those next years, um, the end of the century read. One other one read this, quote, four, four horsemen of the apocalypse photographed in Arizona. Makes you not really want to go to Arizona, does it? Um, just days to go. Another one read this, quote, 1997, beginning of the end of the world. World's religions all agree the apocalypse is near. Inside the article, it went on to say this, Planet Earth will undergo swift cataclysmic changes beginning in 1997, followed by the end of the world on January 6, 2000. Now, the, what's interesting, if you take a historical look, these sorts of predictions are not unique to our own time period here. In, in A.D. 198, okay, so you're talking about 150 years after the death of Christ. About. In A.D. 198, panic struck much of the Mediterranean world because a rumor started going around. And this is what you know, the record we have left of it is, quote, many witnesses had actually seen a walled city. They were speaking of uh, Revelation 21 uses the imagery, not literal, of this walled city coming down. Um, that many people had seen a walled city in the sky over Judea. And for, for nearly 20 centuries, you guys, uh, Middle Eastern as well as then mostly the Western society has been obsessed with when the return of Jesus, the not yet, and the destruction of the world, whatever that might look like, when that will take place. And um, what, what we learned is that nearly every single generation since Jesus' departure thought it was their generation. Um, let me give you just a couple selected. These are the dates we have records of these sort of predictions, must, you know, much like our predictions when the end of the world was going to come, when the not yet was going to be now. 500, 1,000, 1,100, 1,200, 1,245. 1260, 1300, 1420, 1533, 1606, 1694, 1734, 1844, 1914, 1934, 1970, 1975, 1979, 1980, 1981, 1988, 1989. Notice that they're getting closer and closer. 1992, 1994, 2000 goes on. Now, historically, most of, of, of this date setting ha- has come from kind of theologically aberrant groups, what, what Christians would oftentimes call cultic groups. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses set many dates. Joseph Smith of the LDS or the Mormon Church has set dates. Louis Farrakhan of the Nation of Islam predicted a date. Sun Young Moon of the Unification Church set several dates. What's interesting is in the past few decades, even um, evangelical leaders have begun this process of trying to predict dates using, using sloppy research, paranoia, kind of these suggested or supposed biblical calculations of you know, us being able to measure and figure things out and time things, which, by the way, are nowhere in Scripture. I remember a few years back, um, my wife and my family, we went down to Arizona. Um, we're not where the four horsemen were. I don't, I don't think they were there. But we were down in Arizona, and not because of that. And, and, and we were in Phoenix, and uh, we're driving down the interstate, and I kept, I kept seeing these billboards go by. This is like, 
let's see, it was, it was probably, I don't know, it was early 2011, I think it was. And all these billboards, and I'm trying to you know, see them as I'm going by. And uh, they, they were put out by uh, FamilyRadio.com, which is run by a uh, Harold Camping. Harold Camping just died a few months ago. Harold Camping is sort of a famous recent uh, somewhat evangelical leader who, who's famous for making end-of-the-world predictions and has a huge amount of money, so, so you know, puts it out there in our culture. And on that billboard, it, it, it read this, Judgment Day, May 21st, 2011. A lot of you guys will remember that. Judgment Day, May 21st, 2011. And then a verse, uh, you know, he quoted a verse in the Old Testament, Cry mightily unto God. And then in a big sort of starburst on the left side, had this statement, The Bible guarantees it. Wow. 2011. The Bible guarantees Now, here, here's my question. What do you suppose a person who, who was seeker, skeptic, whatever... A person who's not a follower of Christ doesn't believe in They read that they don't—they're not that familiar with the Bible. They're told by a significant Christian leader the Bible guarantees it. What do you suppose their view is of the Bible? What do you suppose their view is of followers of Jesus? You think the word naive comes to mind? Idiotic, moron? Yeah, absolutely. Because see, the danger is it damages credibility, not just. Not just to you know people and it damages credibility to to the church and most importantly it damages credibility to Jesus. It drags his name through the mud. Because see, here's the big question: If these followers of Jesus can't get right what the Bible says about something happening uh, in six months, how can we be sure they got right what happened two thousand years ago? Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, right? Completely casts all these questions in people's mind. Dragging Christ's name through the mud. And yet, in Scripture, where we always want to go back to, Jesus unambiguously says, no one will know the day or the hour. In fact, in one of these parables, you know, Jesus does the all the discourse, and then there's a series of five parables. We're just looking at one. One of the other parables, he says, imagine someone came and robbed you at night. Okay, you're sleeping. He said, if you would have known when the thief was coming... You would have been awake, right? You would have had the baseball bat. You would have had your gun out. You have no clue. You wake up and it's, it's done. It's another way of saying you simply will not know. You can not know. You cannot be right about it. And so that's why he says, stay awake. Now, how is it that people keep getting off? I would suggest it's because oftentimes he says, therefore, be prepared. And people think, oh, okay, you be prepared means I need to get the newspaper, I need to get my Bible and start finding things. No, no, no. Be prepared means you live every single day in the reality that this is true. There's a kingdom where a flag's been planted, and he's coming back to fully consummate this kingdom. And you don't want to be face down in a roadside ditch, so stay on the path of this kingdom versus the millions of other kingdoms which will call for your attention. Be prepared, be ready, be alert. Not alert for trying to figure out when. Be alert for how you live, how you go to work, how you do relationships, how you take care of your banking. Every, everything you do has to be in light of this reality that there is a now not yet kingdom in which I'm living in called the kingdom of God. That's what it means when he says, stay alert, be ready, keep your eyes open, be a listener. Number three, Another thing we learn 
from Jesus in this parable is that life in the kingdom requires a commitment to the long haul. Now, what we, what we find out in this parable is that half of the young women in this parable show up with insufficient oil to allow uh, the timing of the events, you know, didn't, um, didn't really work out for them. The, uh, the, the uh, a parade comes and it goes, and they're not prepared in that, in that sense. Matthew chapter 11, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Matthew chapter 11 tells this story where, where, where John the Baptist um, questions because the timing stuff and the reality doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. He, he was called to be kind of like the guy who, the best man of Jesus, not, not figuratively but quite literally, who goes in front of him. He's called the one who sort of makes way for the Lord. He's, he's announcing, he's coming, he's behind me in this procession. And so repent because the kingdom of God, it's coming. And he does this. He's out walking before the king and he finds himself in prison and he starts questioning, going, this is not making sense. So he sends some of his disciples to Jesus, remember? And he said, would you, would you ask, are you sure you're the one? Right? Because this kingdom is not what I expected. I expected things to go much better than this. Are you sure you're the one? And Jesus responds and he says, well, what are the signs? You know, the prophecy says eyes will be opened. Those healed. What's happened? What do you see? You know, ipso facto. Yeah. It's me. But what's great is he ends that by saying, blessed is anyone who does not fall away on account of me. Isn't that interesting? You know why I think that's so important? Because it's really easy to fall away on account of Jesus because his kingdom is not like my kingdom. My kingdom's immediate. And it's not just because I'm an American who likes fast food and things now. The human heart is I want things for me and I want it to go right and I want it to go the way I want. And his kingdom, which supersedes all that, if I enter it, says, it's a really different kingdom. It's going to look to you inverted and upside down, and at moments it won't make sense. Because it's not all about grasping power. It's not all about comfort. But it's things like dying to self. And so maybe I would suggest one of the biggest frustrations in the, in the, in the history of those who, who follow Jesus, in the history of even the Bible, is... This idea, the frustration that comes that God's timetable is not my timetable. Uh, God's plans are not necessarily my plans. You think about this. Uh, Abraham, right, the great father of our faith, who was first called by Yahweh, he's told you're going to have a son and that's going to be the thing through which I'm going to, man, I'm going to explode onto the world. It's through your lineage and Christ ultimately is going to come, we know later. And he's like 75 Fast forward 25 years later is when he gets Isaac. And in the middle, he blows it and he tries to take matters into his own hand because God's kingdom isn't working the way he thinks it should. And, I mean, think about Joseph, one of his descendants, who, who was told by God that one day your relationship with your family and the nation is going to be really different. Here's what you're going to be like. Great. And then he finds out he's got to go through prison and slavery to get there. And it's years later. And he sees some things at the end, but man, in the process, he's going, what, this doesn't, this, this kingdom does not make sense. But blessed is the man who doesn't fall away because of Jesus is my kingdom. Think about the people of Israel who are, who are taken out of Egypt, and they're wandering around for years and years to get to the promised land, the, the place that God promised to them. Jesus' disciples are constantly frustrated that he wouldn't bring their concept of a kingdom and on their timing. Peter is dismayed. When Jesus rebukes him for saying uh, that he would defend him to the death and he wouldn't go to the cross. And he goes, what are you talking about? That's why I was born. And Peter's saying, but that's not, 
that's not the kingdom. That's not what the kingdom should look like. A Pharisee is insulted that Jesus won't condemn the Roman concept of oppressive taxes because that's not what God's kingdom looks like. Judas is aggravated that following Jesus doesn't make him well off because that's certainly what the kingdom should look like. The Apostle Paul is baffled that his prayers to go to Spain never materialize, even though he's doing what God called him to do, which is preach the gospel. He prayed that the thorn in the flesh, whatever that was, would be taken away, and it's not. He said he did it again and again, and God said no, and he doesn't get it. He's perplexed. Well, that's not what your kingdom should be like. See, Jesus is telling us here in this parable that just as it took longer than expected for the groom to arrive, the nature of his kingdom, it's organic. That's why we started with the seed. Think about how seeds grow. Man, they're stinking slow. They take so long. It's not the way that we would choose to do it. And I guess just a big question for us is, are you in for the long haul? Even think about like your own maturity, your own development as a follower of Christ. You ever wish that you would mature faster, that you develop faster? You ever wish like your spouse would mature faster maybe or your friend um you ever wish it that that sin that that you struggle with like why why is that so hard or or doubt you know those things that you wrestle with you ever wish that god you know your child maybe who who is far from god man why doesn't he get a hold of his heart like what's this waiting thing you ever wish like your job would change you know that person you work with like why doesn't why doesn't god just change it right now are you in for the long haul? I, I've asked myself that question this week because some of these things totally hit me. And I go, am I really up for the long haul? Because this, this kingdom here, it's more like that seed. And that seed looks so weak. You know, what wins, a seed or cement? I mean, you, you smack a seed into cement, the seed's going to lose, right? A little mustard seed, something. So you put that seed underneath the cement and you let it grow. What's going to happen? Who's going to win? going to grow into a tree and that cement's gone but it doesn't work by that fast smash it's this slow organic process and that's what jesus keeps saying the kingdom of god as you get in it as it gets in you and as you start changing as it starts working on who you are as you start submitting your life it's this slow organic beautiful difficult awesome grueling process but it's the only way real change comes number four His kingdom has a door that can and does shut. His kingdom has a door that can and does shut. We we live in a day and age where uh, the narrowness of Jesus is offensive. The idea that someone would say that there's one Savior, one means by which I can reach ultimate reality, have a relationship with God... Is offensive, and so there are different models in our world, just as there were in this world. In fact, this is one of the reasons why why Christians were, were, were thought of as such uh, such a problem, because most of the other religions, all they were told is, you know what, make a sacrifice to Caesar, and then you can go about doing whatever you want. And, and most of them did it. Sure, that's fine. You're God, do that. Now I I go do my own religion. And they said, no, there's only one. And they go, pardon? What? No, 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 no. You do this, and then you can do what you want. I said, no, but there's only one God. And in our day and age, we have a lot of different views. We have the view of, you know, kind of the top of the mountain. All roads lead to God, and it doesn't really matter what road you're on because they're all going to get to the top. 
course, the problem with that is, is that doesn't take into account what the great religious leaders taught about who or what is at the top. Muhammad taught that there, there is one God at the top, and the, the means by which you get there is your own submission to certain laws, rules, and regulations. The Buddha taught that there is no one at the top. It's nirvana. It's, it's to be extinguished. Jesus taught that there's one God at the top, that one God has revealed himself in three persons, and then he shockingly says, you can't even make it up the road. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus, has to come and carry you. He has to take the road for you. Radically different answers. That, that picture doesn't work given the different claims that are made. Another, another oftentimes used picture in our world is kind of the religious buffet picture, right? This is syncretism, right? You know, I like this aspect of Jesus, and I like this aspect of Buddhism, and I like this aspect of New Age, and I sort of, I'd sort of do like a buffet. It's like going through a buffet line. And so I have my tray, and there's all the things that I like on it. So my, my religious worldview is simply a religious buffet. Here's the problem with that. Go to the buffet sometimes and look at what someone has on their plate. You know what you can tell by it? You can tell by it what they like, right? My, like I've got to force my kids to put like things that are green colored, unless it's green jello, on their, on their tray. Because it's just a reflection of what they already like. The problem with syncretism is you end up with a worldview and a God who looks an awful lot like you. It's just a projection of what you already like. It's not anything that's really out there. It's a mirror to me. So none of these approaches really work to this idea. Finally, we need to go kind of quickly here. I apologize. Finally, number five, there is a kingdom which will win, is what Jesus tells us. The door is going to be shut. The bride will, and the groom with his bride will arrive. Nothing can defeat it. There's a kingdom that will win. Listen, listen to this statement here because I, I think uh, John Ortberg says it so well. He says, the point is that one day the bridegroom is coming back. On that day, justice will roll down like water. All of the wrongs of this world will be set right. And we will know the truth about the whole world. Everything will be brought to light. And he goes on to say, History is not some random cycle of events leading nowhere, nor are, we live, nor are our lives just some random searches for pleasure or comfort. We have a story that we are writing. That's our kingdom. And it will have an end, and we will be judged. We need to live in light of this great truth, that there is a kingdom which is not our kingdoms, not our governance, not our rule. There's another one. And I can follow a lot of different kingdoms out there, and I might find myself down the road so far like these ten young women where they're going, how did I get here? What happened? You know, How did I end up face down in a ditch? But he says there's another kingdom, another way. You won't get it. You won't be able to understand it. You won't be able to predict it all. But this one leads to a banquet that is phenomenal. A celebration that will be a celebration of the groom. And the most surprising part is you're the bride. You're part of the celebration. You get to celebrate. You get to be celebrated because he has come to wed you. He has sought you out. He has longed for you. You are the apple of his eye. You're the thing he's been longing for. And because of that, that final banquet will be the flourishing of everything you've ever wanted. All those things that you've longed for in life will come true. Evil will, will run backwards. 
And everything you've lost will be restored in a way that you could never imagine. That's the picture of this now, not yet kingdom. That's what Jesus tells us in this parable. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have assured our hearts that your, your kingdom will win. And God, thank you that, that this winning thing is not about us being right, but it's about you conquering evil and brokenness and destruction. You conquering those things which would seek to disintegrate who we are as people. Things that would seek to pull us apart from ourselves and from others, from our world, ultimately from you. And yet, God, you have acted. Thank you that your kingdom, though we so easily misunderstand it, God, that it is a thing that organically grows. It doesn't come in forcefully, but it comes in beautifully and organically. And it changes all of us. God, I pray for every single one of us here, Lord, that that your kingdom, the roots would continue to spread out in our hearts and it would reach areas of our lives that are yet still dark and rocky and shallow and broken. And it would continue to transform. God, would you give hope to the person who, who, who feels dismayed because the kingdom doesn't look like what they thought it would look like. The timing of it is, is taking longer. God, may they not fall away on account of Jesus' kingdom. But may they be in for the long haul, not by sheer grit of teeth, but may your Holy Spirit just fill their hearts. Even right now, God, as they go tonight, God, may they, may they really sense the reality that you have everything under control, that you're writing a story and you've written us into it. And we want to play our parts, Father, because the joyous part is we find out we're the, we're the bride. And we love you for that, God. Go with us this evening. Thank you for teaching us from your word. Thank you for the opportunity to be together as family. And we love you so much. We pray this in Jesus' strong and powerful name on which our kingdom, your kingdom, is based. Amen. Guys, thanks so much for being here tonight. We've got a little bit of time to hang out. We've got some uh, treats and stuff in the back, as we always do. So go get your kids if they're over there. um, And come on back. Our prayer team will be up front. Uh, We'll see you guys this weekend.